Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is is Celebrity Celebrity Memoir Book Club. With a very special Thanksgiving edition. There's nothing special about it except for the next one minute I'm going to use all Thanksgiving tropes when I tell you. Welcome to the podcast. Even though we are thankful for your listenership and always thankful for your feedback because I think every day is a time for growth. If you have a feedback that is not helpful or constructive, you can stuffing it up your goddamn asshole (laughs) because I think you're full of beans. Where do beans come in? Green beans. Okay. I cannot stand people who give us advice that would fundamentally just change the podcast. I want to say, I think that if you have feedback that is constructive, we will marshmallow it. And if you have feedback that will make this podcast just be a different podcast, then you can take your smallpox blanket and shove it up your bum. That being said, thank you for coming. If you love us, please leave us a five-star review. We will thank all of our five-star reviewers at the end of the podcast. And we actually have some very important housekeeping up top. Yes. So first and foremost, we are doing a a Patreon-only event December 1st in New York City. If you want to attend, by all means, this is the month to join the Patreon. Get all the deets. We would invite everybody, but it's limited number of seating, so we got to go to the Patreon warmings first. Also, we are about to do the sickest merch drop in the world. Yes. The designer, Adrian, who designs our podcast logo and is a good friend of the podcast, she designed some t-shirts and miscellaneous. I mean, I'm so fucking excited for it. I could scream into the microphone, but I won't because I'm thankful for you and I respect you and I adore you. There's also a Patreon discount on merch. Also, thank you so much to everyone who came out to Nikki's Unisex this week for our first comedy show. We are so excited. You guys turned the fuck out. So now we get to do it every single week on Thursdays this time. So starting Thursday, December 2nd, we'll be doing a live comedy show every week at 7 p.m. So just keep coming back. It won't be the same thing every time. So you can come every single week and it'll be so fun. Ashley. Yes, Claire. What is one thing you're thankful for this week and one thing you're unthankful for this week? Unthankful for? I want to keep it true to us and we're not really positive people. We're up and down. Okay. Oh, I'm so glad I got to go first. I'm thankful for the podcast. Fuck. <laughs> Sucker. <laughs> I am so grateful that it's grown to what it's grown to and that you guys are here and that we're all having fun and that I get to do this every single week because there's truly nothing I love more. I'm unthankful for crusty foods. Like what? I'm just so sick of the fact that there's always crumbs everywhere. I feel like I clean so much and there's never not a crumb. Every time I put on my glasses in my apartment because I don't wear them that often, I'm just like, there's crumbs everywhere. And I just don't understand how this keeps happening to me. Claire? Yeah. What are you thankful for and unthankful for? Okay. I am thankful that I live in a milk-friendly home. (laughs) One thing that you knew I was really excited about, you being Ashley, you not the listeners. Oh, I hope that this does not trigger people. This might be the thing that like people abandon us over. Claire's a milk freak. (laughs) I'm just a milk drinker. That's a milk freak. And I'll drink like cups of milk. Like cow's milk. Whole milk. But the thing is, Mac is also a milk drinker. I feel like you're like a malnourished kid (laughs) trying to put on weight. Sometimes nothing hits like a glass of cold whole milk. Nobody relates to this. (laughs) I'm not like other girls. I drink milk (laughs) at 30. This is exactly why I'm grateful for my boyfriend because I live in a milk safe environment. He's a milk drinker. We keep the refrigerator stocked with milk. And then the thing I'm unthankful for is that because my boyfriend is unfortunately a man, we do have like right now seven or eight empty milk cartons in our fridge. What the fuck? And today I went to have cereal for breakfast and we had no milk and I almost had to put water on it. This is psychotic. So I'm grateful that... Out of your whole year, 
the thing that you're thankful for and unthankful for are two milk-centric things. Your entire world revolves around milk. We're sitting here in my apartment getting to do the job of our dreams and you're just like, thank God there's milk out there. And sometimes not milk out there. (laughs) I'm happy that I have a lot of milk in my home, but I'm unhappy that all of the evidence resides right there in the fridge, like a milk graveyard. That's my body. This week, speaking of Thanksgiving, a fixture of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, some might say. (laughs) I laugh because I think that might have been the height of your career as a podcaster. That was a seamless transition and I'm shocked. I'm shocked and I'm sad that this is as good as it gets for both of us. (laughs) Our memoirist this week is Katie Couric. And here we read this week, Going There, the 500-page tome with a full index on the back. It is a tome. I don't even know what that word means, but that's what this is. It sounds like a ton, and this book was a ton of pages. (laughs) A tome of pages. Ashley, should we go there with Katie Couric? Yes, we should. stone cold bitch i want to start out with a criticism Mm -hmm. the cover of this book features katie couric sitting in a kind of crouched and a welcoming relatable position where she's holding her bare foot you know i'm not a foot person and i wonder why in order for her to be warm and relatable we needed to see toe on the cover i'm now putting my hand to the cover to block out the foot to see if she's just as warm and relatable What do you think? Yes, but the foot adds something. The foot makes it seem like you're just catching her kind of getting dressed in her dressing room. They didn't need it. She does have, and she talks about this a lot, one of the most welcoming, warm, bright faces. Not homely, but homey. But I wonder because they needed to do a dark cover to make sure it was serious enough that they'd done like a pink or a light pastel cover. It would have looked a little too... A memoir that it might have just been recipes. Yes. So they had to do a dark cover where she looked bright and they had to throw a foot in there to even it all out. Catherine Couric was born January 7th, 1957 in Virginia. She grew up the youngest child of four. She was much younger than her older siblings and she was very much the baby of the family, the smiley performer who was always called on to perform as a joke for her older siblings' whims and friends. She had a stay-at-home mom and her dad was a PR man who had previously been a journalist but left that career path for the more lucrative PR career path and always was obsessed with journalism and really fed that to her. She goes, it is not an overstatement to say that I pursued journalism for my father. Yes, excitement of it quickly won me over, and yet the pleasure he took from my success in a profession he'd loved but had to leave was never left on me. He couldn't believe the stories I covered, the people I got to interview, the books I had inscribed for him by some of his favorite authors, and of course, the money I eventually made, so beyond anything he could have ever imagined. I never wanted it to be awkward between us, but the fact is, he reveled in it. I was living the dream, mine and his. That's sweet. It really was. And I have to say this book fits the mold I think of she loves both of her parents very much, but her father plays such a critical role in her whole life, giving written typed out feedback on every high school essay she wrote. When she'd write for her college paper at UVA, she ultimately went to, because she didn't get into her first choice school, which was Smith, where her two older sisters had gone. But she went on and was part of the newspaper at UVA. He would send her written critiques on all of her pieces for the paper. And he was just a very involved father. And after every report, she would call him. This went on for the rest of his life, that they had a very close bond. And she really relied on his feedback and his direction career-wise. After UVA, she graduates and she gets her very first job straight out of college. She goes to ABC News in Washington. She has her mom drop her off and she walks in and she had applied and not heard anything back yet and assumed her resume was a part of a stack of resumes. 
and basically lied about being a friend of a guy who was the head of the office. The security people were like, that's not enough. You have to have an appointment. So she goes, well, let me call him. And she calls up, gets his secretary, patches him through. And he's so impressed that she's so ballsy just showing up like that. She ends up getting an interview and then she gets the job. This is the first chapter of the entire book. And I do think it sets the stage for why she is so successful. She's got chutzpah. And from this point onwards, she never is afraid to confront anybody or pursue anything. You cannot tell the girl no. You cannot tell the girl no. She gets knocked down and she gets back up again, as Chumbawamba once said. So she gets this job at ABC. Her and her best friend, Wendy, who to this day is a huge producer. She was the producer for 20 years of Larry King Live. She works as a desk assistant and she is on anything and everything that she can get her hands on. Wendy and I did everything we could to get ahead. We memorized the office floor plan, learned everyone's names and what they did. We came in on Sundays to do extra work. We called it Sunday school. She quickly works her way up, but it's like nothing is handed to her and nothing is just a given. In the spring of 1980, 10 months after she had started, Carl Bernstein, you may have heard of him. He was part of the Watergate situation. He broke it, I believe. I've heard of Watergate. Okay, well, Carl Bernstein, instrumental. He takes over and George Watson was leaving... ABC to start a brand new cable news operation called CNN. She went to leave and work with him and be employee number five at CNN. And Bernstein himself says, why are you going to the minor leagues when you've already made the majors? And she said, I know Mr. Bernstein, but I think I need to learn how to play baseball first. Yep. I actually said that. She is not afraid of literally anybody. To say that at 22 to Carl Bernstein is beyond me. So she goes to CNN in its early days. And this ends up being like an amazing learning curve for her. Because it's cable and non-union, there aren't these rules about who can and can't touch what, who can and can't be involved in what. They are very hands-on. She is manning the camera sometimes. It's the place to get opportunities. We could do anything, write, produce, edit, run equipment. So she was able to do everything, including getting on camera. It also, I will say, wasn't all glory days. There was hiccups. They were building a network from the ground up and there were problems. They would just be on air by accident sometimes. She says they were known as chicken noodle news while they were finding their legs because it was kind of a fucking mess. But she goes, here I actually got to be on TV. Not the vote of confidence it might sound like. There was a lot of airtime to fill and they were desperate for people to fill it in. She has this experience where the first time she ever goes live, she does her best. And then her boss comes up to her and goes, Reese Schoenfeld, president of CNN, just called. He never wants to see you on the air again. Katie goes, did he say anything else? Her boss says, no, that's it. But then in our second experience with coffee mug wisdom this month alone, she sees a coffee mug that says, don't let the turkeys get you down. And she goes, you know what? I'm going to try again. I mean, to have the president of a network say, I never want to see you on TV again. And then you see a mug that's like, don't listen to that turkey. (laughs) If that's not a sign, what is? She could have seen a mug that said case of the Mondays, she could have seen a mug that says, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. But she saw a mug that said, don't let the turkeys get you down. And it's very prevalent for Thanksgiving. So she ends up leaving for a show called Take Two, which is at the headquarters in Atlanta. And she's an associate producer for their Noon to Two broadcast. And this is another small team where she gets a ton of opportunities and she has two great bosses. Their names are Don Farmer and Chris Curl. And it's another situation where she goes, I was always on the hunt for opportunities to report. She even goes to a voice coach to figure out where to speak from. She says that she sounded very high pitched on air and with her young looks she was like this actually isn't a good match and she took it upon herself to get good at broadcasting. She did anything she could. She got to do some really cool opportunities like go to Cuba and report from Havana. She did a lot of interesting pieces and within two years she got to call. Your piece was brilliant Katie said Reese Schoenfeld over the phone the same guy who'd banned me from airwaves a year before. So I mean she really goes in, cuts her teeth, is willing to take any project you can give her. At that same job she's in a meeting one time. She arrives a little bit late. She makes it very clear that she's a late 
late arrival person. She said she's late to everything. And I was like, yeah, take that to all those people who are like the key to my success is waking up at 5 a.m. I mean, she is waking up earlier than 5 a.m. at the Today Show. That's true. So she's waking up at 4.30 every morning. (laughs) She said she was always late to everything. And I was like, you can be successful and late. Dad, (laughs) what if the one thing I took away from this book is that you can actually not be on time to stuff and still win? I would say, what a person to tie my lot to. (laughs) Anyway, so one day at a meeting at CNN, she arrives a little bit late and Ed Turner is leading the meeting and he says, that's not why Katie is successful. She's successful because of her determination, hard work, intelligence, and her breast size. She froze. The place went silent. Some people laughed a little bit nervously. She did not take this lying down. She told her bosses and she sent a memo to Ed Turner and said, I found your remark that I'd succeeded because of my determination, hard work, intelligence, and breast size, insulting, demeaning, embarrassing, humiliating, and totally uncalled for. If you were intending to be humorous, you failed. I request that you apologize to me and that you somehow indicate to the others who heard the remark that you have apologized. I mean, wow. So he ends up giving kind of a bullshit apology on the phone, but her two bosses are totally supportive. And she says, for every young woman starting out, I wish you a Don and a Chris and no Ed Turner. And I feel like this is a really important first look because this is kind of the first and last time she deals with explicit sexual harassment in the workplace. I mean, the sexism, it never stops. Ladies, we know. <laughs> the sexism, <laughs> it's in everything. It's a special sauce on every dish of life. But this is the only time someone's out and out overtly sexual with her at work in this book and she handles it head on and even though I have nothing but admiration for that kind of gusto and confidence and self-assurance I do think those traits in her that made her so successful do ultimately make her a bad mentor for other women it seems very lost on her later in the book that any woman wouldn't handle a come on the way she had right so then she jumps over to a job in Miami and she sings the praises of Miami local news. This is where you learn to be an on-air reporter because there is breaking news all the time. So she spends two years in Miami getting the on-air experience she needs. Like we said, she really worked hard at it. She says that when she first started doing a ton of on-air work, she was not off the cuff at all. She would write out every single thing that she needed to say. And after they would film a segment, she would just be like muttering the words to herself, like a shell-shocked person. And the cameraman would be like, what is wrong with you? And it gave her a lot of experience of like how you work with a cameraman, how you get to a scene, assess it, figure out the angle. How do you go between facts you have prepped and then getting like a live witness, the questions. Every night there was a new breaking story and it's where you kind of cut your teeth as a journalist. Yeah, and she also had failures there. It was really the era of stunt journalism where people would dress up to try and get inside of a story and she had this experience where she dressed up as a homeless person to be like, I lived it and did a really bad piece about what it was like to be homeless and she was like, yeah, I did well at certain things. I fucked up royally in other ways and she learns a lot. She gets an agent and it just so happened that the woman I had hired was dating the general manager at a TV station. Even better, the station was WRC in Washington, D.C. She gets a job as a general assignment reporter, bumping her salary from $45,000 to $60,000 a year. And this is right at about the age of 28. And she says, she was nearing the deadline I'd set for myself to become a network correspondent by the time I turned 30. So she moves up to Washington. She is doing this general assignment reporter gig at the NBC affiliate in D.C. The thing about her, and I really respect this, is that she's not good at things the first time necessarily. So even here, she asks if she could try anchoring. I could do the morning cut-ins, I suggested, the ones that would run at 25 minutes past the hour at the Today Show. And he goes, sure, you could try. So she goes one day, she gets there at 4 a.m., she does her best job. Later that morning, I stepped into Bert's office. What did you think? Can I try again? Brett paused. Maybe if you go to a really, 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 really small market somewhere. And then obviously, like not that long after this, she becomes 
a co-anchor of the Today Show. So it is so interesting the way she gets these rejections and doesn't internalize them, but she does listen. Early on, she says, after getting one of these negative feedback reviews, she looks around and goes, well, what is everybody here that I don't have? And she goes, experience. All they have over me is that they've been doing it. And she decides, I'm just going to get as much practice as I can. And I think that that's such a good mindset that literally anyone can take with them. And I mean, if Katie Couric can go from the president of a company saying, never do this again, to being the height of this entire profession, and if you failed at something once, you could go try again. At this point, though, she is getting some feature pieces. And one of the feature pieces she agrees to do is Lonely Too Long, about the difficulty young professional women were having in finding a man. This is around the era that that famous Times piece came out where they said, too late for Prince Charming, women over 40 are more likely to be killed by a terrorist than to get married. And she says it gets to her. She starts looking around and realizing that she is trying to get married. She's not one of those women that's like, if I get married, I get married. If I don't, I don't. She is pretty clear about the fact that she wants to get married and have a family, but she's not going to put her career on hold at any point. She really pursues it the way I feel like most men pursue it, which is all of a sudden she was nearing 30 and she goes up, time to settle down. And then she kind of was like, all right, who's out there? Never once would I say, does she put her career on hold for any personal matter? Ever. Even when maybe she could have. (laughs) So she meets a handsome man named Jay Monahan. He introduces himself as a house painter. And then later she finds out he's a lawyer on track to become partner at a very prestigious law firm. They fall in love quick and heavy. Quick and heavy. Fast and dirty. Loose and light. (laughs) He proposes to her in one of the otter stories we've heard. A friend's having a house party and he just kind of takes her in one of the bedrooms and proposes and then they come out and they're like, we're engaged now. Very much the way you probably got your first hickey. That is how Katie Couric got her first engagement. And then she says this line, I have to cite, I don't think people should talk about sex. I guess I'm a prude at my heart, but I've never seen somebody in these books talk about sex in a way that didn't make me absolutely cringe. I feel like the problem is that a lot of women, especially women with very specific reputations, are obsessed with not looking prude. And the way that you have to explain sex a lot of times makes you sound prude. So they get engaged and she says, now I had the next six months to focus on work, plan a wedding, and have plenty of premarital sex. I mean, that made me gag. <laughs> Should I start saying that to guys after we hook up now? Just be like, thank you for that premarital sex. <laughs> She's at this NBC affiliate in Washington. She gets a call. I have an opening at the Pentagon. Tim says, you're relentless. So I didn't know anything about Kitty Curry going in, but it reminded me of the Mariah Carey book and that you know how you walked away from the Mariah Carey book going, oh, this was a book about how she is a writer. The thing that she wanted you to know... She is a journalist. Yeah. The thing that Katie Couric really wants you to know is that she's an incredible interviewer who can get tough interviews. So she gets this incredible job. She is in over her head. They're on their honeymoon and she is studying manuals about every kind of gun, every kind of tank. How do you fly a plane? What are all of the code names for? She's learning everything she can. And then she starts this job at the Pentagon. And on day three, she gets her first tip off. So these women she met in a parking lot on her first day, a few days later, were like, hey, by the way, did you know this big time general might have been caught espionaging for Russia? And she's like, that's a story. And so NBC takes this huge risk and lets her go live with the story and breaks it herself. It turns out that that was not the case. And then that man was honorably discharged after having the feds called in on his house and then sues NBC and Katie for $10 million because of the damage to his name. But I mean, once again, is she deterred by the fact that her first story lands her in a $10 million lawsuit that is eventually dismissed? No. She's not deterred. I think it's really admirable because it does require big risk taking. I do think she did get lucky in some ways. I know that she worked hard, but I think that there are a lot of ways that this could have gone wrong 
one, having producers or bosses that don't stand behind her during these situations. I think it is nice that she had bosses who like when she was sexually harassed cared and bosses that when she fucked up were like, no, it's good that you're taking shot. Keep going for it. So I disagree. I don't think anybody above her gave her any permission to do it. I think she just of her own accord was like, I'll find another job where I can get more opportunities. I mean, at the Pentagon, that was her first week and they stuck by her. Okay, she didn't get fired, but I do think she is somebody who like consistently kept at it. Even when they came up and said, you cannot do this anymore, she just kept going. Coming from a standpoint of this day and age, looking at a lot of these situations that she overcame, I don't even think it would have been in her control to keep going. I think that we've seen people on the internet get completely shredded for random shit that makes them unhirable. In the local news world, I do think when you're doing a live performance every night, there has to be a sense of at some point you're going to say something wrong. I don't know how held against you it is if you have a misspeaking here or there. In terms of the sexual harassment, I do think predators have a very like acute sense of who's vulnerable. This was pretty mild as far as what women have experienced in the workplace goes. Oh, yeah. What people in her workplace have experienced. And the way she came back guns blazing, I think within her personality, she is not the type of person that you would go after if you were somebody looking to take advantage of a vulnerable person. I think she makes it very clear that if you fuck with her, she will speak loudly about it. She's very fearless in that sense. And I do think people who take advantage of people know who to take advantage of. It's never a mistake. Like the creepy teacher always knows who's having problems at home, you know? Yeesh. So Katie and Jay get married. The premarital sex comes to an end. In 1989, she is offered the role to become the substitute newsreader for the Today Show. So she is frequently taking the shuttle up to New York, reading the news, and it is a huge deal. She's so excited. This goes on for about a year where they bring her on more and more. At this time, the Today Show was in a state. Jane Pauley had been the co-anchor for a long ass time with Brian Gumball and got kind of shoved out for Deborah Norville. And the response to Deborah was never that good. And so they were not in a good place. It was a real mistake by the producers of NBC because they wanted to kick out Jane for being kind of stale. But then they brought in this hot young thing, Deborah. Something they never realized is even if the viewership goes down a little bit, if it goes from 5 million to 4.5 million, that's still 4.5 million people who have your back. Who love Jane. So when they brought in a hot young thing, Deborah, she was set up to fail because they basically wrote her character in as the other woman who's about to steal your man and they hated Deborah. So once they kicked Jane out, Deborah was left to just flounder. They wanted to offer it to Katie pretty soon. They asked her to fly out for a meeting. It turns out during that flight, Deborah's grandmother passed away. They were going to offer Katie the anchor position. After the way they forced Jane out, they can't force Deborah out while she's grieving. So they're like, Katie, we wanted to offer you this job of the national correspondent. And she was like, oh, that was definitely worth an emergency flight. I'll take it, but <laughs> thanks. <laughs> so basically they bring her on to start easing Deborah out. They like push Deborah to the wayside and she leaves. And Katie does great. She like learns how to end her segments with a little joke so that whenever she throws back to the anchors, they're always laughing and riffing and they have something to work with. She emerges as a star. And honestly, this was a better situation because then the audience was able to really warm up to Katie Couric. So when they finally do push Deborah over the edge and get rid of her, it's met very well. She also starts working with a whippersnapper named Jeff Zucker. At just 25, he had already made a name for himself as an NBC researcher at the Seoul Olympics where he prepared thick binders of background and trivia for Jane and Bob Costas. Jane became Jeff's champion, guiding him towards a writer-producer gig at Today. So he shows up and they become the dream team. They just could not be stopped. They were a real Claire and Ashley of the Today Show. No, they weren't. (laughs) They were very functionally capable. (laughs) 
But so her and Bryant, they begin having this rapport where he's like a handsome guy, very old school, and she can just give it right back. They have great banter. She can make him laugh. She can take it like the best of them. Her and Jeff have this incredible relationship. And then by 1991... In March, they offer her the co-anchor job. She also, when negotiating this job, says, I'm really interested in this job if Bryant and I split the big interviews 50-50. I don't want to be relegated to cooking segments and fashion shows. She does not want to be the fun-loving gal on the sidelines while Bryant gets the big interviews. And they're like, we'll do our best. Then she goes, great, I'm in. Also, I'm pregnant. So she's about to have her first child. Jay, by the way, was on partner track at his law firm in Virginia. So... After they got married, when she moved up to take this co-anchor position, they were in a long-distance marriage. And now she's pregnant. She's about to start the role of a lifetime. What they want is for him to make partner in D.C. and then be able to parlay that into a new partner job in New York. And they're just going to see how long it takes. One of her first experiences taking over fully was when Deborah went on maternity leave. So here she came pregnant, and they got pregnant by accident. I can't believe it. I'm fucking pregnant. I stewed for a week and finally got used to it, even excited about the idea. The way things were going, if I had delayed being pregnant until there was a lull in the action, I would have never had children. It really was such a lucky mistake. But who knew if NBC would be on the same page? Her first day on air was April 5th, 1991. And one of the big questions that seems silly, but actually kind of follows her around for the rest of her life is should she be Catherine or Katie? And she talks about how going into daytime, one of the pieces of advice she had gotten early on in her career from her very first ever boss was, Katie, don't let them make you the cute features girl. You'll get stuck in it and never get out. Yes. And so here she is and she goes, how do I introduce myself? Am I Catherine or am I Katie? And she ends up being Katie. I mean, it is a morning news program and it's a lot of her personality. And we talked about how the thing that impressed them was her sense of humor. She was a journalist with a personality Mm -hmm. and that is how she got her national start, really. She also is beloved. She says she thinks being pregnant when she started really helped because no one can be mad at a pregnant lady. Well, Olivia Munn was... Except for Olivia Munn. We don't give her enough credit for being a pioneer. (laughs) And she was beloved. She even has this line of, I was the queen of May, as my mother might say. I also want to talk about her relationship with Bryant because she does speak about him mostly positively, but I feel like there is resentment there. He fought back on the fact that she would get 50-50. She ended up walking away from negotiations saying it'll be 49-51. And to the end, he was holding on tight to the more important interviews. She gives this exact back and forth that happened on air right before she left on maternity leave. She says she'd be gone for nine weeks for maternity leave. And he goes, why so long? It's a major shock to your body, I hope you realize, when you have a baby. Your ancestors didn't worry about that shock to your body. They came right back and worked. Yeah, and they died when they were like 32 years old. You're 34. You've already beat that. What are you worried about? How many men get nine weeks off? I noted that he did every summer. That was Bryant. Tough, sensitive, competitive, prickly, brilliant, all of which I'd learned to navigate. He loved to needle me and I had no choice but to smile gamely and play along. So she takes maternity leave. And she says, I've never been particularly maternal, yet now I found myself in the position of caring for a wriggling bundle of need. She also is very careful to point out that Jay steps up. Now we're living in this time when women are working a lot more, but they're still doing the lion's share of the housework. She says that wasn't the case there, but I also question it because they literally were in a long distance marriage and he wasn't even living there. And like, how much of the day-to-day work was he taking on when he lived in a different state? I do think their live-in nanny was taking on the lion's share of the child rearing. She has this chapter called Brains After Babies, where she talks about the mothers she had met and interviewed. And one of them is Andrea Yates, who's a woman in 2001 in a fit of postpartum psychosis, had drowned all five of her children in the tub. 
which is obviously a horrific story, but she takes a very sympathetic look. And I'm not familiar with the case, but I guess it was determined that like doctors had failed her and the insurance had failed her. She had been taken off a medication she needed. And she talks about how in the interviews afterwards, the husband is just like, we were fine. We were doing fine. This woman was homeschooling all five children who were under seven. And he's like, look at the photos. They were happy. And it's like, well, clearly they were not. There was diagnoses of postpartum depression, which the doctor said would get worse with each baby. And he insisted that they have more children. She ties it into how lucky she has been and how hard being a mother was on her. And she talks about how lucky she is to have the childcare, the health insurance, a wealth of loved ones. She was able to afford a live-in nanny. I think she does a great job talking about how important family leave is. But speaking of that live-in nanny, she did have the luxury of being able to afford a live-in nanny. She did not have the foresight to not hire a friggin' Looney Tune. She hires a woman named Doris who lives with them. And as we said, Jay is, they're in a long-term marriage. So during the week, it's just Katie and Doris. They would spend all their time together and the boundaries got blurry. Initially, Doris had the weekends off. And at one point she just said, I don't want the weekends off. I want to keep staying here. I just like you guys. You're my family. And Katie's like, "Mm, okay. And then things start to escalate. At one point, Doris is asking every night for a hug before bed. And Katie's like, this is getting fucking weird. And then finally they decide that the long distance thing isn't worth it. Jay moves to New York and he's figuring his shit out. And Doris is like, I'm not going to just be doing work around the house if Jay's just chilling, doing nothing. This is ridiculous. She would get constantly jealous of Jay and then put her foot down. And Katie was like, okay, you have to leave. She fires Doris and Doris goes on the revenge track. And I will say the way that she built up this Doris story. And I was like, what the fuck is about to happen with Doris? I was reading this like it was a horror movie. And then Doris just does a lot of shitty revenge shit in the media. She spreads a rumor that Jay is a pedophile. I mean, it's awful. Over the next 10 years, she dominates the Today Show. The Today Show becomes the number one morning show. It is the It Show. Everybody loves her. A couple big things happen. One, she partners up with none other than sex predator Matt Lauer. She describes him as natural at the chummy, unscripted back and forth, good looking with a rakish smile, a nice head of hair. He comes in together on the Today Show. They are incredible. They're the Claire and Ashley of the Today Show. She's quick to point out that they did not have a relationship outside of the TV show. She is very clear that they were very chummy on air. She says, it was our job to look like we were brother and sister from 7 to 9 a.m., but after that, they did not spend a ton of time together. And she says that was the key to their good on-screen relationship is that they didn't mix business and pleasure. And this is really her area of expertise. She's doing hard-hitting interviews mixed with fluff pieces. Some of the bigger interviews she had that really put her on the map as an interviewer, she interviewed David Duke of KKK fame. And she let him have it and got a lot of positive feedback. Obviously, the white supremacists were grumpy about it, but that's just kind of, they're grumpy about a lot. But then it was the Rodney King riots. And she says that she enormously regrets the way they covered that, really focusing on white people. Some of the lighter and more pop culture highlights are she does segments with Martha Stewart, and then she tells this very loaded story about a time that she was the person who was supposed to introduce Martha Stewart at an award that Martha Stewart was winning. She ends up having like a lifelong beef with Martha Stewart, I think. At this point, the culture wars were raging about the stay-at-home mothers versus the working moms, and this was sort of a new era in this competition between the two types of women. And she claims she has no problem with stay-at-home moms, even though she herself is a working mom and a kind of a workaholic mother. She's like, most of my viewers were stay-at-home moms. We had a real bond. I respect what they do. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. But she really calls out Martha's commodification of being the perfect stay-at-home woman while building like a bazillion dollar empire. Even though I don't agree with how Katie acts in this section, I do respect that that's a valid claim to make. 
Oh, I completely agree. So she's introducing Martha Stewart at an award show. She's like, I don't know how to bring up Martha Stewart. So she's like, well, she's everything that I'm not. She's a home person and I've never been to my house. She wrote a poem. Martha, dear Martha, what shall I do? These people have asked that I introduce you. I haven't eaten, haven't slept. Talk about making a girl feel inept. Anything I can do, you can do better. Potting a plant or knitting a sweater, dipping a candle, tiling a table. You're always ready, willing, and able. A room needs repairing, you'll make it sing. With a robin's egg blue, because it's a good thing. Marzipan, tart, tatin, cocavine, two, bruschetta, Actually, pan. I don't know how to say these French words. I'm not like Martha. Okay, keep going. <laughs> bruschetta, pancetta is not all you can do. Your holiday meals are a feast for the eyes. Can't you use stovetop and Mrs. Smith pies. It went on for two pages, she claims. So Martha gets on stage and she goes, well, Katie, would you know what bruschetta was if it weren't for me? She just can't really believe that Martha Stewart didn't think this was funny and even throws in this dig. It took a few years and some prison time for Martha to develop a sense of humor. Katie plays this off like, I just didn't know what to do. I wrote this poem. It was supposed to be about how she's better than I am at all these things. But she does know this is a professional women's gala. So the poem went over great because it was in a room full of women who were often made to feel like the Katie to Martha's domestic goddess. So they were all like, yeah, ha ha, you try too hard on this shit. Obviously, this is not a flattering introduction to the woman of the hour. If she couldn't have done the job, she should have just not done it or asked for some quotes or done something generic. But she very purposely made this passive aggressive joke at Martha's expense, pretending to be kind. It was a dig. She was rolling her eyes at Martha's entire life's work at her own event and the way that Katie can't really cop to that to be like, well, can't Martha take a joke at her own expense? No, she can't. Not at her own awards dinner. Also not from somebody who's clearly actually resentful of her. She's like, I didn't know her well enough to write anything, so I said something mean. Then shit gets real. She gets a call one day that Jay has doubled over in pain and he's going to the hospital. They rush to figure things out and it turns out he has a lot of cancer. He has the tumor the size of an orange completely blocking his colon. When they look, it's spread all the way up to his lungs. This begins a really tragic year-long battle with cancer. At first, they are being very optimistic. At a certain point, she realizes that things aren't going to go their way. I think she realizes later that he had realized things weren't going to go well. They never talk about it. This section of the book was really beautifully written. I cried a lot the entire time. She does a really beautiful job talking about how hard it is, how lonely it is, and how separated she felt from her husband at the time. She doesn't candy coat it at all either. She talks about how their relationship wasn't perfect. He had grown somewhat resentful of her success and fame, and she felt frustrated at all the money he spent because she was a real saver. They had grown kind of distant with their two busy schedules. And she talks about the lack of honesty between them preparing for what actually happened. She quotes the minister who married them said, don't let the fear of vulnerability result in the building of a wall that blocks your talking to each other. Don't stay behind a wall trying to be strong for the other. Rather begin from your mutual weakness, your vulnerability, so that together you can show the strength that can be found in the stories of your relationship. It's too late for us, but consider this my gift to you or anyone you know who's facing a terminal illness. So they spend just a brutal year. She makes no qualms about calling in every favor she can. She's working the entire time, and she says every day after work. She would just spend so much time researching treatments, getting whatever experts she could on the phone, pulling out every stop. When he dies, it's heartbreaking. The children are five and two. It was just a really tragic time in her life. Also, for some reason, they're renting at this point, and they're renting in a co-op. And I have to say, one of the most evil 
groups of people on this planet have to be a Park Avenue co-op board. She goes to them. Their lease is almost up. And the people who own the condo are like, we're going to be in Europe for another year. So if you want to extend for a year, but they had to get approval from the co-op board. So she goes to the co-op president and explains the situation. My husband is so weak, so sick. Can we just renew for a year? And they were like, ah, rules are rules, man. (laughs) Truly evil people. Should we read one of the most heartbreaking sections I've ever read in one of these memoirs? You have to read it. I don't want to. In the years that followed Jay's death, Ellie was in denial. Ellie's the older daughter. At summer camp in Maine, she sent letters home addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Jay Monahan. My heart sank whenever I saw one on the mail table. On visiting days, always a huge deal for campers. Ellie told friends that her dad was on a business trip. Just a toddler when her father died, Carrie had her own way of processing the loss. One morning when she was three, she told me her dad had flown through her bedroom window the night before, knelt down at her bedside and said, Carrie, I'm so proud of you. I imagined her innocent, uncalcified heart being open to just such a visitation. A teacher told me that when a kindergartner classmate asked Carrie where her father was, Carrie said, he's sitting in this chair right next to me. When I say I was bawling, (laughs) I was just like, not that he's proud of you, that's too much. Fact that she's like seeing him. I think she really was. Katie takes one month off and then goes back. Some of the media feedback that Katie gets in this book, reading it, made me afraid of ever having a public persona. She decides ultimately to not bury Jay with his wedding ring. She wants to keep it for herself on a necklace to keep him close. She wears that ring on a necklace her first day back and people think it's a sympathy grab. I understand that like me and Ashley are as skeptical as they come of any media person celebrity. I think we can all admit that when your husband dies, that's sad. When your husband tragically dies of cancer and leaves you a widow at 41 with two young children, to be like a sympathy grab. I'm sorry, if you're not feeling sympathy, if you feel like she's had to do something extra to hook you, go fuck yourself. I think that she writes about grief really beautifully in this book. And she writes about not just grief, but the peripheral emotions that come with it. She writes about a lot of anger. I got so angry with people when Jay was sick. I felt like they couldn't do anything right. If they stayed away, I resented it. If they got too close, it only strengthened my resolve to circle the wagons. I think I often defaulted to anger because it was easier to feel and express than pain or fear. One thing that I noticed about this book, she really takes the time to explore every side of a lot of her emotions and a lot of situations. Instead of simply saying that something happened, she's really delving through the emotion. Instead of just being like, we watched my husband die slowly. She's explaining that their marriage wasn't perfect, that there's a lot of different sides to every feeling that she was feeling. I think she really goes through stuff and brings you through it. We have this section, the way things were, there's a couple of interesting things that come out of this. One is, this is really where we lay the groundwork for the kind of relationship her and Matt Lauer had. We had a warm, friendly relationship. He often referred to me as sweetie off camera in the nicest way. Matt was less of a chauvinist than Brian and didn't make me feel on edge. The crew loved him. We had that rare special thing called chemistry. Yes, we were competitive, vying for the big interviews and building our respective teams of producers. And occasionally that created tension, but it made us both stronger. But chemistry is a tricky thing. Add a cocktail or two or hurt feelings and it can blow up in your face. I never want to take that chance. So I rarely socialize with Matt outside of work. And on top of that, Matt was just a very discreet guy, never putting his personal stuff out there. When he broke off his engagement to a local newscaster, I had to hear it from someone else. We weren't close in that way. She did have one experience though, that she was very quick to brush off. She had a producer. She doesn't name the producer, but Matt said, are you trying to butter me up? The producer wrote back saying that wasn't her style. She wouldn't know how. Matt said he'd show her, suggesting she spread it on her thighs, invited her to his studio office and asked her to wear that skirt that came off so easily. The producer stared at her computer, then realized the message wasn't for her. Minutes later, a flustered Matt appeared at the door. He handed her a book. This might be good for the show. He said, they never spoke about the incident. 
when the producer told Katie what happened, they both realized Matt had a fling with one of the production assistants and the production assistant and the producer had the same last name. My first reaction was, wow, gross. He's cheating on his wife. Not That's not okay. He's taking advantage of a young woman on the show. And then she says, the general rule at the time was it's none of your business. A don't ask, don't tell culture where anything goes and apparently everything did. Assuming Matt was having a consensual fling, I didn't even consider talking to the young employee about it and embarrassing her. We haven't really gotten into this when we talked about Jay, but she mentions not noticing that he was losing a fuck ton of weight right before he was diagnosed with cancer. She says, looking back on it now, you could clearly see that something was up, but they were both just so busy that she didn't notice. And now she's saying, how could these things have been happening under her nose? And it's like, well, they were there. You just didn't take the time to think about them. I think it's a combination of it was different at the time. Now we would say, oh, this young woman's being taken advantage of by a man in power. At the time, you wouldn't even say that. You go, oh, this girl's having a fling with her boss. I don't want to embarrass her. That mindset, I do think, is a very different mindset than we have now about where the shame should go. But I do think she chose to not look into it. It was a man's world and it was a boy's club. And I think she just grew accustomed to locker room talk kind of situation. She meddled herself against it. Anyway, things are escalating between GMA and the Today Show. It's just a real heyday for morning shows. One of her big competitors is Diane Sawyer. And she talks about the vicious booking competition between them. Things were insane. Like if Today had somebody at a hotel, Good Morning America would send a car and pretend to be the Today Show and be like, come with us. One time they had a performance out in the park. So we had our weather helicopter buzz above it the entire time. To just like ruin the concert. She's also, at this point, wading back into the dating pool. It's 1999. She's 42 years old. She's lonely. She wants a date. So she starts dating a bazillionaire, Tom Warner. Who syndicated shows like The Cosby Show and Roseanne. So earlier in their relationship, he's buying the Red Sox. So that's the kind of money that he had. He wasn't the primary owner, though. He wasn't the primary owner, but like... It's so expensive. To be even like a secondary owner, a tertiary owner. To even buy a seat. Season tickets are really expensive. (laughs) (laughs) So they start dating. It's pretty hot and heavy for a minute. Then he becomes very hot and cold. Reflecting back on it, she's like, oh, textbook narcissist, love bombing, and then backing away. But at the time, she was just spiraling. I do feel like she was dating like a 24-year-old for the first time because I think she was settled enough in her career that she could really do her own thing. She was still laser-focused on her job, but she wasn't laser-focused on climbing a ladder. She had a very big job. At one point, she asked if he saw marriage in their future, and he was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And she was like, okay, interesting. I also want to say that with all this dating, she kept it very separate from Ellie and Carrie in the way that they didn't have a say in anything. But they were involved. They were all going on vacations with Tom. And then Emily gets sick. Emily is one of her older sisters and she gets pancreatic cancer. So this is less than two full years after Jay dies. So now she's going through the exact same thing over again. Things are pretty grim from the start and Emily starts fading quickly. I mean, that sucks to lose your husband and your older sister to cancer in just a few years. She gets hit hard with death. It's right around this time that she gets a reputation for being a stone cold bitch. And I'm like, maybe she was a stone cold bitch, but I also think she was dealing with shit. She is at this point the top of early morning TV. She is at the height of a very difficult career path and she is the number one woman at it. She has like a $65 million five-year contract. She's known for giving people a hard time if they don't do it the way she wants. The press, they're not as enamored with her as they once were. And of course, she's going through this breakup with Tom. She can't believe that whereas she was once on top of the world married, she's now 
less liked and single, getting dumped by this guy who ended up dumping her over email after five years. And she finally gets a therapist and therapist just says, have you ever considered that maybe not everyone is going to like you? Honestly, I sort of hadn't. On today, getting people to like me was a job requirement and pretty soon I was recruiting them by the millions. With that kind of positive reinforcement, it simply did not compute when somebody wasn't buying what I was selling, especially somebody I'd invested in emotionally and had even considered marrying. The therapist's words brought me back down to earth. I found it strangely liberating. This radical idea that not everyone was going to like me. It was an epiphany that would come in handy. Because boy, oh boy, do people start to not like her. So then she gets this job offer. She has done 15 years on the Today Show. And her producer, Jeff Sucker, had ended up becoming like the president of NBC Entertainment. So then she starts getting other offers because her contract is about up and other people are out fishing. NBC obviously wants to keep her on the Today Show. They're offering her a stupid amount of money to stick around. $20 million a year to stay. And anything she wants to do. But Les Moonves from CBS comes around with another hot little offer. He wants her to be the solo anchor on the evening news, which the woman had never been the solo anchor on the evening news before ever. There had been a Connie Chung, Dan Rather co-anchors and that actually had gone horribly. Yes. She's given this offer and she takes it up. And I have to say, we know from her childhood that her dream was to be a serious journalist. That was her and her dad's dream. That's what she'd always wanted. And even though she did get to do a lot of heavy hitting stuff on the Today Show... The other half of it, the like how to make a mimosa and pretending to be Peter Pan, it took some of the credibility away. She was like, it would be so huge for all women. And yes, is that why she did it? No. This began the worst five years of her life. And I have to say, she admits to some unforced errors, the hostility of CBS, and then the criticism of the media to make this trifecta of a hellhole. So to sweeten the pot and make it even more difficult to turn down, he also said that she would be able to do pieces on 60 Minutes, and that was the mountaintop. They offer her $10 million a year to do this. She blames her mom, who gets blamed for quite a few things in this book. Her father seems to be faultless, but her mom, her stay-at-home mom, you know how she could be like a money-grubbing little whore? (laughs) She tells her mom, I'm about to make $10 million a year. Her mom says, that's ridiculous. They should be paying you at least what you're making now. So she goes back and says, I need more. And they say, okay, we'll give you $15 million. And that's the most anybody's ever made in the history of evening news. And Katie's like, I'm doing it for women. I have to make this much money for the ladies. She moves over to CBS. CBS did not want her and they were not quiet about it. While Les Moonves, who was the head of CBS, courted the fuck out of her, he did not have the support of the people that she'd be working with day to day. Something she didn't know when she took the job was that a lot of other people there did not want her there. Most of the people she'd be working with on a day-to-day basis. So CBS culturally is a very pride and true traditional. They take themselves very seriously. They were also the third ranked of the big three networks. So when they brought Katie in, it was a hope that it would switch things up and make them the number one. They did not want to be switched up. They were angry that she was coming at all. Obviously, the misogyny was out the butt. To make matters worse, it was leaked how much she was making. And it turns out in order to pay her that much, they did cut other people's salaries. It's not like the best thing I've ever heard for a warm welcome. Not ideally. Andy Rooney is somebody who was from CBS News and was on 60 Minutes and had gone on Don Imus's radio show and said people at CBS are not enthusiastic about Katie Cumming. I think everybody likes Katie Couric. I mean, how can you not like Katie Couric? But I don't know anybody at CBS News who is pleased that she's coming here. So when they had a luncheon to welcome her, Andy sent in a note that read, in spite of reports to the contrary, I look forward to your coming to CBS. I did think Bob Schieffer was went a little overboard when he said that you were the best thing to ever happen to CBS News. Has he forgotten the day they canceled the Dan Rather Connie Chung co-anchor experiment? I kiss Leslie when I meet her in the hall now and I hope I get to know you well enough to to kiss you. I know we have ways to go. 
So that was the apology letter she got from her coworkers. They did not like her. There was a grand premiere. It was a big deal. The ratings were splashy when she showed up and first started anchoring the evening news just because people did want to see it. Her being the news anchor was a news story. People were excited about it. The newness doesn't stick around forever. I think it sticked around from one night. Maybe two. And things at 60 Minutes, which was one of the main reasons she went over there because she was so excited to be able to work on 60 Minutes. She was like, out the gate. This was a terrible culture. They told her in the beginning, the mantra here at 60 Minutes is someone else's success diminishes you. Someone else's failure elevates you. She admits, out the gate, she's made some mistakes. Mistake number one was everyone knows she's making this huge amount of money. She already has a reputation for being a diva. She comes and she's given this huge office that's like on a second floor kind of looking over everything, balcony style. And she completely redoes the office. There's a full makeover to make it like a sleek, sexy, younger, younger the TV show, not younger the adjective. It did sound like younger the TV show. White leather chairs were involved. A glass globe. Where Dan Rather used to have his meetings with producers. That's where she now got hair and makeup done. People were not welcoming. She had a big interview up top and she called for a freelance cameraman that she knew from NBC to come record her. Obviously, that's going to piss off the people who work there. She also made some mistakes as a journalist. I think it was very hard for her to find a voice because she wanted to be Catherine, but everyone knew her as Katie and they did not want her to leave that. It felt like no matter what she did, if she went hard, people were mad at her. If she went too soft, people were like, see, she doesn't have the chops. One of the out the gate interviews that she botched was with the Edwards family. This was before they even knew that he was having an affair, but John Edwards was running for president and his wife had cancer and was choosing to be on the presidential campaign trail with him. Katie asked a question like, you're putting your work first and your family second. Some have suggested that you're capitalizing on this. And as someone who just watched several family members die from cancer, she was like, damn, that was probably not the right way to go about this. She had just herself been hurt when somebody had accused her of vying for sympathy after her husband died. In the New York Times comments, someone wrote, some say Katie Couric should have quit her job to take care of her young daughters when her husband was fighting colon cancer. Some say Katie Couric is a no-talent hack who is an embarrassment to real journalists everywhere. I mean, people didn't want to see her covering hard-hitting news. Those were some of the mistakes she made that she cops to. But On the other hand, she had the media coming after her. The very first day she wore white, they were so vicious about it. They hated the way she looked. They hated her makeup. They thought her hair was stupid. They said she looked fat. Obviously, like the criticisms of women, they don't care what you're saying. It's all about how you look. And then on top of that, at work, they despised her. They refused to give her the good interviews. Any ideas she had, they said those are terrible ideas. Any good ideas she had, especially at 60 Minutes, where she wasn't the only person there, any good ideas she had, they would just give to someone else. A couple months in, I think she says four months in, is when it really dawned on her that this was an enormous mistake. And she had a five-year contract. So that was not a good couple of years. Yeah, and she was home, she said, just crying over dinner about how hard it was. She was constantly just on the phone crying. And she did some good work while she was there. I mean, she won awards for some of her interviews. Her Sarah Palin interview became the go-to interview about Sarah Palin's lack of expertise. Or I think it won an Emmy. Her coverage of the miracle on the Hudson, that blew up and was huge. I mean, she did some good work, but the guy Fager, who was the top, absolutely despised her hated her. He was so mean to her. At this time, she also is dating someone new, a young chap named Brooks. What the fuck kind of name is Brooks? Was he on The Bachelor? So he was 32 years old to her 40-something. She says to the outside world, it really looked like a midlife crisis. 
And she admits that it was. She is not nice about Brooks. I mean, she doesn't say anything outright mean about him, but she basically calls him a hot, dumb dummy who she dated for five years. When I found out that's how long they were together, I was like, Katie, then that's on you. So her oldest daughter at this point is off at college. Her younger daughter is still living with her. And one day Brooks just moves in and she hadn't told Carrie. She's like, it didn't occur to me what my teenage daughter would think about a 35-year-old man walking around the house shirtless. And keep in mind, Katie travels consistently for work. So it's not just like, oh, there's a man coming over with me. It's like, you're alone at home with a 35-year-old man. That was a very inappropriate thing to put on a child, especially if you weren't even serious about him. The way she speaks about him now, it's like, oh, you couldn't have ever been serious about him. So she knows that she has to end it. And she's like, I was on a work trip in California talking to Nancy Ray shooting the shit. Nancy's a big old gossip, it turns out. She's like, you know what, Nancy, I have to go home and break up with this guy. And at that point, she gets a text from somebody while she's getting a pedicure. Page six is reporting that Brooks is moving out of her apartment. (laughs) I cannot imagine that her children were well-tended to. I mean, she had live-in nannies their whole lives. Live-in nanny or not, not only did Katie work a ton, but it also seemed like she played a ton. She is like out at bars taking shots quite often. She parties. She does seem... Fun to drink with. She's like, I never wanted to be alone, so I made dinner dates every night of the week. And I was like, have dinner with your kids. Are they not good company? It seems like no. Maybe they're duds. I'm just kidding. I researched them after and they look cute, but... But it is funny that she's like, I had to fill up my calendar and make sure I was never home alone. And I was like, well, you wouldn't have been home alone. You would have been home with the children that you have and you have no father. But can we talk about how fun she sounds? Because when she talks about how they were partying, she was like, me and my friend did this one dance called the lotion where we would pretend we were applying lotion and rub it all over our bodies. And I was like, that sounds like a fun dance. And she would do these flaming shots where you would dip your finger in alcohol and then light it on fire. And she was doing shots until she couldn't stand. I will say that was a lot. Anyway, so her contract runs out at CBS and it is pretty much just known that they're not going to keep going. She is trying to figure out if it's worth it literally at all. She wants to keep on doing work, obviously, with 60 Minutes. She sits down with Baker, the guy who's in charge of 60 Minutes. He brings her to a diner for this very important business lunch. She says, I really love 60 Minutes. And he said, I know you do. And they just kind of sat there in silence. And she was like, well, I guess I wasn't going to get to stay on at 60 Minutes. Instead, she gets an opportunity to do a syndicated talk show. This does feel like she was just grasping at straws. Obviously, there was a fuck ton of money involved because she was still such a name. And also, apparently, syndication is where the money is at because you get bought out by each local network. That's how Oprah amassed a lot of her fortune. And so that money adds up because it's not just one salary. It's like you own a part of the show. She was going to be the executive producer on the back end. She brings on her buddy, Jeff Zucker, who had just gotten fired from being the president of NBC because it turns out everybody hated him and he was rude to people. He also loved a cheap buck. So he heralded the Fear Factor era, whereas NBC had formerly been like the Friends, the top rated sitcoms. And they had dropped to number four. His first few months, he took them from number one to number four. So he was kind of persona non grata, but she loved him. And she's like, let's make magic, Jeffy, baby. As a show of good faith, she says, they're going to pay me $20 million to do this show, Katie. I will give you half of my salary plus split 50-50 the back end of everything if you come on and be my partner. So he is making a stupid amount of money to come produce a daytime talk show. For a person who just lost his job and was hated by everybody at NBC. Okay, let's just run through what's happening right now really quick. She leaves CBS. She's prepping this talk show. She's going to do a syndicated talk show called Katie. Her dad gets Parkinson's. That's just like a thing going on. And she meets another guy. 
His name is John Molnar. She, at this point, wants to be in a steady relationship so bad. She's pestering all of her friends, being like, set me up with somebody, set me up with somebody, set me up with somebody. And one of them finally sets her up with John Molnar. But barely. She asked for his number twice. And then finally he emails her and he's like, hey, heard you're looking for me. We didn't talk about this heavily, but in her courtship with Jay, she was also very forward. She goes after it. I guess once she pestered him enough, he did like hanging out with her. He did have a 27-year-old girlfriend that he broke up with after they'd been on like two dates. That's how you know things are promising. If you're dating a man in his 50s and he dumps his 27-year-old girlfriend for you. How much do you have to be worth to be better than a 27-year-old? I think Katie is worth $100 million. So I guess that's the answer then. They're making Katie. Katie, as a show, was not super working. She realizes pretty quickly that Jeff is not in it. Which does suck because he's getting paid an insane amount of money to be in it. And also she had been offered her job back at the Today Show. They had been like, whatever you want, you can come home. And she was like, I've already gotten Jeff Zucker in on this. I can't go back. That feels like a failure. And the problem is she wants to be doing basically what she did at the Today Show. She wants to be doing heartwarming news. She wants to be doing hard-hitting news. She wants to cover it all. And that's not what people want during the day. Essentially, they want filler That's what their research shows. And she really sticks with wanting to do real news and people just don't like it. It's really expensive. They're paying her a ton of money. The production costs a ton of money. This is at a time when the cable news market is making the viewership a fraction of what it was. So after two seasons, Katie is not renewed. Jeff at one point is fired by the network. They're like, this guy just fucking sucks. And he calls up Katie and says, hey, Katie, can you call and give me a recommendation for CNN? Listen, they're looking for a president. I need somebody to vouch for me. And when I get there, you could get back to doing the work you want to be doing, which is actual news on CNN. There's a job waiting for you. She calls, gives him the recommendation. He gets the job. She like never hears from him again. Fuck Zuck. She's also dating John Molnar. He has two kids. She has two kids. Their relationship is very solid. It's so solid, in fact, that he ends up proposing to her, something he had told her early in the relationship that he would never do. The only problem is, once again, Katie has not included her children in any capacity in this relationship. She said it was from good intention. He kept his distance because he didn't want them to think he thought he was their dad. However, when he proposed to their mom without even consulting them and then had arranged to have a party thrown at their house, that would have been a surprise for Katie. He also had not told them there was a party going on. So they walk into their house. There's a party happening for an engagement that they didn't know about. When she sat them down and told them what was happening, she said they both burst into tears. And they were not even young at that point. So she and John are planning a wedding. It's all very exciting. Eventually the girls get on board and then lightning strikes twice. John is diagnosed with cancer. It is an enormous tumor on his liver and they slice it right off, get to work on curing him. And this time it works. He survives it. He's cancer free. In celebration, they get married. She also has some really nice words about a second marriage about Jay's family being supportive and how they had tried their best to stay in touch, but without that commonality of Jay, it does get tough. She has this line that I think is really beautiful where she says, it was an extraordinary gift giving me permission to love John while still loving Jay. Because I've read a lot. I've not read a lot. I've seen a bunch of TikToks about people moving on after a loss and that weird presence in your relationship where it's not like a breakup where you like leave the ex behind and have a new boyfriend. You still love that person. So they get married June 21st, 2014. Five weeks later, they're on their honeymoon when she gets a call from her mom that says, I need you to come take care of me. Now her mom is sick. 
by that Labor Day, her mom also passes away. So now she's in a crossroads. She doesn't know what to do. There's been a lot of loss and she has no idea what to do with her career. For the first time in her life, she's leaving a job without a next gig lined up and she's panicking. She meets Marissa Meyer, the CEO of Yahoo. She pitches to Marissa, you guys have this huge company. You guys should be making top notch content. So she gets this huge budget. She's paid a ton of money and she starts creating essentially Facebook videos, but for Yahoo. The problem though is of course Yahoo is an algorithm driven content site that has more HuffPo type pieces than hard hitting news. And she's like, we were doing these incredible interviews and literally nobody could even find them. Which does make you wonder how good the algorithm was or how good the pieces were. Like one or the other. One of those things wasn't good. So this again ends up in another disappointment. She also has some not so great things to say about Marissa. I mean, she really makes Marissa seem like a flighty, flighty person who had no business holding the position she held. She's like not paying attention. She was more interested in like the glitz and the glam than doing her job. The example she gives is she runs into the CEO of Starbucks and is like, what if Yahoo was the homepage on all these tablets at Starbucks? Let's make that the landing page for people who use Starbucks Wi-Fi. And he's like, great. So Katie Couric immediately puts him and Marissa Myers onto an email and is like, let's make this happen. She doesn't hear anything back. She gets a call from somebody who works right under Marissa and he's like, she doesn't call people back. That's not her game. The Starbucks guy is like, yeah, she never got back to me. So he moved on with AOL. Marissa is eventually outed at Yahoo. They have a new president taking over. They painted as some sort of merger, but I think she was just kicked to the curb. And Katie leaves because she's like, this is first and foremost a tech company and not a content company. So then we get into the sauce of the Me Too movement. She leads up to it painting the pictures of the men who got picked off one by one. It started with Roger Ailes and then went on to Bill O'Reilly. Matt Lauer was the one who interviewed Bill O'Reilly after he'd been fired. She talks about looking back on it now and being like, did he see the parallels between what they were doing? Because at this point, Matt Lauer had not been exposed really at all. There were some wrestles and Katie Couric was part of their game plan trying to expose Matt Lauer. She says a number of reporters had been calling her being like, did you ever notice any behavior with him? And she was like, what is brewing? She sticks to her guns that, you know, she always knew he had these extracurricular affairs, but they weren't close in that way. They didn't keep each other updated on each other's personal lives. And she had never heard of any wrongdoing in the office. Also, he had never been anything but a gentleman to her. And this, of course, is not true. We heard that butter on your legs story. But that's like the difference in thinking is she fully knew that story and was like, I never heard of anything bad. She did have a really bizarre cognitive dissonance with this Matt Lauer thing, the way it just felt so out of the blue to her when A, we know the butter on your leg story. And so she's insisting that the relationship was purely professional. B, she also insists that their relationship was purely professional. She didn't know anything really about his personal life. So to say like he wasn't the kind of person who could have done this, you either don't know his personal life. And so, yes, he could have, or you do know his personal life and you did know about it. The thing about the workplace sexual harassment, though, is that's not his personal life. That's at the office. So I do think she thought that she had a pretty good sense of what was going on at the office. But the problem is she like thought that that was fair game. She fully knew that he was having sex with young women who worked under him. And she was just like, yeah, but he's never sexually harassed anybody. He just has sex with women whose jobs depend on his approval. I think you're like watching her in this book outline her learning about power dynamics. Good example of her having this cognitive dissonance is literally one page after she talks about Matt Lauer interviewing Bill O'Reilly being like, it's weird that he never really saw any parallels. Meanwhile, the very next page, she looks at her own mistakes in handling workplace sexual harassment cases 
and talks about an interview she had with Anita Hill. Anita Hill at the time, of course, was testifying against Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and accusing him of sexual harassment at the workplace when he was her boss. And so she asks her if Thomas had repeatedly disrespected her at the Department of Education, why did she take a job with him at the EEOC? Her answer, she liked the work. It was an opportunity to put her skills towards civil rights initiatives, which is what she always wanted to do. And in those days, it's not as though women, even talented, well-educated ones, were juggling tons of options, particularly women of color. To say that her interviewing... Anita Hill and not seeing the parallels and then looking back at Matt Lauer and Bill O'Reilly and not seeing the parallels. Obviously, their situations were completely different, but it is a situation that she had been in too. I mean, she mentions a couple of times while she didn't experience enormous amounts of direct sexual harassment, she mentions so often the boys club of news, the way that women were viewed as less than, the way that it was a man's place and women were shoehorning their way in. I will say, I do think that's why she didn't feel any sympathy for Anita Hill because I don't think she saw herself as an Anita Hill. I think she saw Anita Hill as somebody who like, why did you put up with that? Why did you let him do that to you? Meanwhile, Katie is somebody who stood up to anybody who doubted her. She is somebody who entered the boys club and won by fighting harder. So she's looking around and going, me and Matt Lauer make the same amount of money. I'm at the top of this game. Why didn't you fight the way I did? I think she sees women who didn't win the way she won as like people just weren't tough enough. And Matt Lauer doesn't see himself as a Bill O'Reilly. I'm not saying either of them is right. To have these two things one page away from each other feels like dense. She's like, people tried shit with me and I turned them down and I fought back and I won. And she's like, why didn't you fight back? I guess Anita Hill is fighting back now and that's the whole point. She has a hard time with the Matt Lauer thing. And I don't think she ever really resolves her feelings towards it. So she warms it up by being like, the weeks before it came out, I go out to dinner with Matt. And we start talking, of course, about how people like Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly were getting canceled. He says, this Me Too stuff feels like it's getting kind of out of control. It feels like a witch hunt. I took it that Matt was worried about the lack of due process, people's livelihoods, and reputations being destroyed by anecdotes and innuendo. Something I wondered about too. Women come on to me in my office and sometimes they're crying and want to talk to me. Now if they sit next to me on the sofa, I can't even put my arm around them. I tried to imagine such a scene taking place. No, Matt, you cannot do that. You cannot put your arm around them. He looked concerned. I cannot imagine the last 10 years or honestly ever a woman going up to their male boss and crying and expecting physical sympathy. Every woman I know who's ever cried at a workplace is like in the deepest depths of the basement with their sweatshirt over the window, making sure nobody could ever see them cry. I've definitely cried at work. I'm only human. I'm only woman. But I have never cried to a male boss. I've only cried because of a male boss. So people are calling Katie trying to break this story. She once again goes, I know nothing. But what she does do is point them in the direction of CBS and Jeff Fager, who she hates. I think that this is one of the more damning pieces of evidence of her own bias. Because she's like, Matt Lauer was always cool to me, so I'm not going to give you any dirt against him. But you know who's a fucking asshole? These guys. So find something. I'm sure it's there. If you look, it's there. November 29th, 2017, 4 a.m. She wakes up to find out Matt Lauer has been fired. Her primary feeling of emotion is concern and sympathy for Matt and his family and what he must be going through right now. And then occasionally sympathy for herself. Was our conversation just three weeks earlier his way of preparing me, grooming me to be sympathetic? Well, if it was, it worked. She goes, I couldn't imagine what it was like to be Matt in that moment with practically the whole world reacting to your plummet from grace. Your family, your children having to process something so painful in public. Once the internet gets hold of this information about Matt Lauer, everyone combs through every piece of him that's ever been online. And when strung together, she's like, all right, those were a lot of weird things to say. 
But she also backtracks a lot of it. One of them was a video of her on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen. And he's like, what's the most annoying thing about Matt Lauer? And she goes, well, I guess that he's always pinching me on the ass. And she's like, that was just a joke. Or a roast that he does where it's insinuated that he's fucking Ann Curry. He's had anal with Katie. She's like, okay, but those were just jokes. (laughs) And then she finds out the actual stories, not just the on-air gotcha moments. The actual stories, she's like, all right, well, I don't know that those could be jokes. But she's not 100% come around. She goes, I know, I was a mess. By this point, it seemed clear that Matt had done some terrible things. It was awful. And yet, it felt so heartless to abandon him. Someone who had been by my side literally for so many years. I was confused and simply not ready to take on the role of sympathetic friend and colleague just yet. So he's trying to reach out to her. She keeps being like, yeah, I'll call you later. And then before she calls him, there's another piece of news. And she's like, fuck, I'll call you tomorrow. And she's kind of going back and forth, keeping it at arm's length, but not 100% mad at him or cutting him off. Something that happened after she left was Anne Curry was tried out as a co-anchor and left because she didn't have great chemistry with Matt Lauer. In a karma a bitch department, Anne Curry resurfaced, revealing that she'd been approached by a tearful staffer about Matt's sexual advances, which Anne then reported to NBC management. It made me wonder why no one had ever come to me. And I do think that line right there just goes to show that with Katie, she had this like a man's energy almost and that you did not feel safe going to her. She was not there to break the ceiling for women in meaningful ways. Well, she was not there to mentor other women. I don't think she was an approachable person. So she finds out that one of Matt's victims was a woman that this girl had faxed in her resume when she was in college. And so Katie brought her in to shadow her. She was like, I love that this girl did this. That girl becomes a PA. She works for them for a while. She gets her career started because Katie took a chance on her. But I don't think Katie was mentoring her. I think Katie was like, yes, let that girl in. Give her a chance. We have to give women opportunities. Katie wasn't guiding her. I don't think that that's necessarily the problem for me. What is she supposed to take every intern under her wing? She's like the top person at work. She's all about breaking ceilings for women. And I think she's probably happy to hire a woman. There's a difference between hiring women and then creating a work environment that's better for women. Young female PAs were often sent back home when they were on assignment because they were like, well, we just have to save Matt from himself. She's losing out on a work opportunity so that we can protect him from his own advances and like disgusting behavior. Why can't offices be less cold places? Why is it like women need to harden up like men? Why can't men be like not dickheads and not harassers and not other things? Katie, you as somebody who is constantly complaining about the sexism, to not be tuned in and aware, because you're constantly hearing about these things and she just wasn't phased by them. She'd become so immune to them. And that's not what helps young women is being like, well, one day you'll be hardened and broken down too. (laughs) If you hang in there long enough, they'll break you and then you'll become numb. (laughs) That's the trick. She does also somewhat blame it on. She says when she left, Matt Lauer was the head honcho, no questions asked. It became like a frat house. The guys in the crew having no qualms about making rude jokes about women. All the PAs became young women who were known for like handing out scripts and sitting in Matt's lap. These are things you heard and you didn't think anything of it? That's a lot. She really grapples with it by saying that her interpretation of him hadn't been wrong. She just didn't know all of him. She kind of sums it up as so many of us were blindsided, never imagining that a dashing, witty, beloved TV star had such a dark side. I've come to realize that Matt could be an excellent professional partner, a good friend, and a predator. She's still grappling with it, I think, which is tough. But I think on one hand, I appreciated it because I think that it is not genuine to have it be so black and white to be like, the day that I found out he did these things, I turned a dime and blocked out every positive memory I've ever had of him and it was over. I think you do have to sort of deprogram your brain from thinking of them 
as a good man, but I don't think she ever quite gets there. Nowadays, her and John Molner are married. They seem to have an internet company that's like a, a listserv or an email chain or something. I think they do like Instagram vids. Ashley. Yes. What did you think of the book? I thought it was a really honest book. I think that Katie Couric is extremely smart. I think that was the main thing that I took away is that she's like a very smart and thoughtful person. I don't think that she always ends up exactly where I wanted her to, but I admire her. What do you think? I like really did love it as a book. I actually found it to be a very compelling page turner. I thought it was really beautifully written. I do think it is like an interesting multidimensional look at what it takes to be a super powerful, successful woman. I think even in our Facebook group, Plug the Wormhole, I saw some people did not like her and thought she was kind of a bitch. And I guess because I wasn't raised on the Today Show idea of Katie Couric being just like the perky mom next door, I had no grievances about it. Like she gave her thoughts on people. Like she would introduce someone and be like, they look like a toad or something. She's not Lauren Gramming it. It was the opposite to me of Lauren Graham who sugarcoats everything. I tell you, I don't know a single thing that Lauren Graham's actually thought about anybody from her memoir. Meanwhile, this memoir, I felt like this was like the God's honest truth from her perspective. I mean, I do think she had a lot of frustrations of being somebody who was like a smart, provocative journalist and getting typecast as smiley features girl. She has an incredible amount of celebrity stories in here that we do not get into. Of everyone from Michael Jackson to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there is a lot of dish in here. We're going to get into all of it in the Patreon for the bonus content. Also, you know, the regular daily celebrity gossip stuff. I've got... I've got to yell at you guys about some Kim and Pete stuff. <laughs> Check out the Patreon. Thank you so much for listening. We love you guys so much and have a very happy Thanksgiving. Have the happiest Thanksgiving. And now, Ashley, can you show how grateful you are for the five-star reviewers? Thank you so much to Kelsey412. This was even one better than the 411. Thank you to Listy Listmaker. I appreciate your organization. Thanks to OPJJKY, my favorite parts of the alphabet. Thanks to Stephalump, you are my favorite mountain. Thank you to M18964. I friggin' love MMs. Thanks to ALW37802. Is that the root beer? Because I fucking love that root beer. Thank you to Zuza. This review makes me want to play the Kazuza. Thanks to AlleyCat95. Hell yeah. I'd love to bowl with you someday. Thanks to Desirita. I'd love to treat you to a margarita. Thanks to Shaky Osh. Well, this review keeps me steady. Thank you, Dulce816. Nothing but sweetness over here. Thank you, Mad as a Titty. Well, you've made me one very happy tit. <laughs> I appreciate you, Echo Pixie. Uh, I hope that your message echoes across the land. Thank you, Young XOJ, XOXO from us. Thank you, Mandy. I love you more than the Miley and Mandy show. Thank you to LLC 3.23. You're my favorite business. I appreciate you, Jules 31. You are so shiny and perfect. Thank you, Glee, heart, heart, heart. You know what? For you, I'll watch the show again. Thank you, Right as Rain Electric. Baby, it is electric. Thanks, Regina, not George. You are not a mean girl. Thank you, Kita Kojak. I appreciate you and this Kodak moment. Thank you to all of our reviewers this week. I love you so much, and I'll see you next week.